welcome to the Faith Church Podcast channel. We exist to reach people and connect them to God and others. If you would like more information about Faith Church or would like to schedule a visit sometime, visit our website at www.igotofaith.com. We can only do what we do because of the generosity of our Faith Church family. If you would like to contribute to our ministry, you can do so by visiting our website at www.igotofaith.com and hit the giving tab, or you can text the amount of your contribution to 84321. Both of these options will send you to a safe and secure server. Your giving is much appreciated. Now get ready as our lead pastor Steve Husky continues with part two of his series, Heaven and Earth. of heaven and earth, and it is going to be an amazing day. Like you said, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to hang out with you today. But before we dive into today's conversation, uh, there are a couple of different people that I want to honor um, in the house today. I've been in ministry for a really long time. I've gotten to work with some incredible leaders, some incredible pastors. I've gotten to meet and talk to a lot of the people that we would all say in church world are some of the biggest pastors in the world. And honestly, um, Pastor Steve, our lead pastor here, is second to none of them. So I want to honor him today. Would you honor our lead pastor um, in this house? He is, um, he was here at the 10 o'clock service and he had to leave. Uh, He had surgery this past Monday. He had tore a meniscus in his right knee and so he had to have knee surgery this past week. He wanted to be able to make it through two services and the pain would not allow that to happen. So he got to head home and try to get his knee back up and some medicine in him. Uh, So continue to pray for him, continue to lift him up, not just for his knee, uh, but how many of you know we've got a really big church and there's a lot of weight that comes with that. And so please continue to pray for our pastor. We love him, we love his family. Uh, So I do honor him today. The second group of people I get to honor today that we are really, really excited about having with us in the house Uh, Here at Faith Church, we are all about reaching outside the walls of our church. We want to reach the world with the message of Jesus. And today, we have an incredible couple here who are doing just that. So if you would stand up, Sean and Nancy Paul are with us here today. Would you put your hands together? They are with us all the way from Honduras. Um, They are some of our strategic missions partners. They run Morningstar Missions there in Honduras. They began their work in 2008 and actually moved their family there permanently in 2013. In just four short years, it's really incredible all that God has done through their ministry. They currently have over 25 churches that they oversee. They've begun over 10 Christian communities in this area. They are reaching a group of people. They currently, Nancy, I think, is leading 12 current children's pastors who are going to help raise up future future leaders in the church. They're ramping that up in November to where they'll have 25 to 30 children's pastors being trained up in these communities. They're getting ready at the end of the year to launch a school of ministry where they're going to train 25 to 30 pastors to take these churches and build these communities and change them for the glory of Jesus from the inside out. So one more time, we are so honored to have you guys here. Thank you for all that you guys do. We love partnering with people just like the Paul family all over the world uh, to carry this message of Jesus forward. Because ultimately, every single week that we come here, regardless of what series title we put on the banner, regardless of what art we decide to throw out there for promotional purposes, I'll let you in on a secret. Here is the church of Jesus. We've got one message. And we can package that any number of ways we want, but we got one message, one job that we're called to do, and that's proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That's what we do. Everywhere we go, everything that we are, it's the gospel. The problem with that is if you have one job to share the good news, how many of you know it's really, really important that you get that news right? Like if you got one message, you can't mess that up. 
You got to make sure like that message has to be true. It has to be accurate to the person sending the message. So when Jesus told us, Matthew 28, I need you to go into all the world proclaiming my good news. The question we then have to ask ourselves is what is the good news? As a believer, I think if I went around this room and just personally asked you one-on-one, hey, can you tell me what the gospel is? Like, what's the gospel? I think as I started going around and asking different people that same question, I would get a lot of different responses, right? You would all probably be somewhere in the same area, but you wouldn't really, like, how would you define it? And if we miss it, if we get the news wrong, then how many of you know we begin spreading a false gospel? We begin spreading news that maybe it's not so good. As I look around at our culture, I think a lot of the reason our nation is in the state it's in, a lot of the things we start seeing, it's not that people aren't informed, it's that they're misinformed. It's that they've been given wrong information, and therefore it's leading them to wrong action. And we as a church, we can't do that as Jesus followers. We can't do that as his mouthpiece to the world. We can't get the message wrong. As I think about the gospel and what a lot of people think that the gospel is, far too many Christians, far too many people like me on platforms like this go all over the world and we decide to like drop the message of Jesus down to basically like the minimal entrance requirement to get you into heaven. Like this is, this is the bar and this is the gospel and this is where you have to get to. It's like what you have to make on the ACT to get accepted into the school you want to go into. Like, okay, I got to get an 18. All right, well, the first time I took it, I got a 15. So that means I got to go back and take it because the gospel, that news is there's the, that's where I got to get to. And I think it saddens the heart of God to see his message being minimized to that level. It reminds me of a scene from one of my favorite movies of all time, top five. How many Monty Python fans are in the house? Anybody? If you're not a Monty Python fan, like we can be friendly, but we can't be friends. There's, okay, like we can't hang out. Uh, my favorite Monty Python movie is this one, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Anybody seen it? All right, a lot of you haven't, so I'm going to kind of give you the synopsis of what this movie is. If you haven't seen it, you need to go watch it. It's hilarious. The basic idea is that you have King Arthur, and you have the Knights of the Round Table, and they've been given a mission by God to go seek and find the Holy Grail of Solomon's Temple. And so the whole movie follows them through these scenes as they're going to these different cities and towns, and they're meeting these different people on this quest to try to find the Holy Grail. And towards the end of the movie, after they've met all these interesting people and they've been through all these different places, they come up, they believe that the Holy Grail is located in this castle up on this hill, right? The bright shining beacon, like that's got to be it. That's where we've got to get to. That's our ultimate goal. But there's a problem, is that between where they are in the castle, where they want to go, there's this chasm and what's called the bridge of death. Now, normally you would just have to cross over the bridge of death, but in the movie, there's a bridge keeper, and the only way he will allow you to cross the bridge is that you have to get the correct answer to three separate questions that he asks you. If you get the answers right, you get to cross over. If you get the answers wrong, you're immediately thrown into the gorge of death to your eternal doom and damnation. The problem is they don't know what the questions are. So as they make their way down this ravine towards the bridge keeper, in the movie you see them like, you can see them shaking in their armor and they're full of fear and anxiety because they don't, they don't know what they're going to be asked. Like, am I going to have the question right? Like, do I know what the answer will be? And so in the movies, you see it go through. 
the brave Sir Lancelot is the first to kind of go up and take the test, and he makes his way to the bridgekeeper, and he tells the bridgekeeper, give me your questions, I'm not afraid. And so the bridgekeeper asks him, what's your name? He says, well, I'm Sir Lancelot of Camelot. He said, what's your quest? He said, I seek the Holy Grail. Third question, what's your favorite color? Lancelot says, blue. The bridgekeeper says, okay, well, you can pass. And so Lancelot crosses the bridge, makes his way to the castle, and so now all the other knights are filled with hope because, wow, like, the question wasn't that hard. Like, I know that. I know those answers. So they immediately, now they're like, oh, well, let's go. And so Robin, Sir Robin is up next. He makes his way to the bridgekeeper, and he goes up, and he's just trying to get him to hurry along. It's like, what's your name? I'm Sir Robin of Camelot. What's your quest? I seek the Holy Grail. Question three, what's the capital of Assyria? And Robin's taken back, and he's like, I, I don't know that. And immediately Robin is thrown from the ravine into his eternal damnation and doom in the gorge of death because he didn't know the answer to the question. So now the next night up is Galahad, and he's like filled with, like he doesn't really know what's going to happen because Lancelot got easy questions and Robin got a hard question. So he comes up and says, what's your name? Sir Galahad of Camelot, what's your quest? I seek the Holy Grail. What's your favorite color? And then immediately, just repeating what Lancelot said, he said, blue. And then he realized that blue wasn't his favorite color, and so he tried to change his answer. He goes, blue, no, great. And but it was too late. Galahad is thrown from the mountain into eternal damnation. King Arthur's up next. He makes his way down, and he goes to the bridgekeeper. Bridgekeeper, what's your name? He says, I'm Arthur, king of the Britons. What's your quest? I seek the Holy Grail. And then there's this inside joke all throughout the movie where the bridgekeeper asks him, what's the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? And then another inside joke, King Arthur responds with a question to the bridgekeeper where he says, what, what do you mean, an African or a European swallow? To which the bridgekeeper steps back and starts thinking, I, I don't know that. And immediately the bridgekeeper is thrown from the ravine into the death for eternal damnation. King Arthur and the remaining knights are able to walk over to their ultimate resting place. They made it to the castle. They can get to find the Holy Grail. It's a funny scene. It plays out really well on camera. The actors pull it off, but I think as we look through our lives, so many of us look at that as the gospel. We see in all the movies, you see it on like the funny ads in the newspaper that, you know, the apostle Peter's the gatekeeper. And one day, man, I just hope when I get there and I'm standing at the gate, I hope I have the right question, the right answer to the right question. The first thing I want to tell you is this, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus is not the secret answer to the secret question. If we boil it down to that, we have missed it entirely. It's not the secret answer to the secret question. That saddens the heart of God. And I think as you look over the scope of the church, there are a lot of well-meaning Christians who will go all over the place trying to share the good news of Jesus with a question. And they'll ask it this way. They'll say, hey, if you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? Now, given, that's an important question. And you need to know the answer to that because, yes, the gospel of Jesus deals with your salvation and your eternal security in Jesus. That's important. But that's not the whole gospel. That's not the good news. We can't break it down to one question. An even more important question that I think we as believers should be asking is not so much if you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? But if you didn't die tonight, how would you spend tomorrow? Because I think as we look over, I, I hope and I pray that all of us in this room, at least the majority of us, guess what? We're not going to die tonight. 
and you're not going to die next week or next month, and you're going to see 2018. Many of us will see 2030. I hope you see 2050, and the question, when we dive into what is the gospel, what is the good news of Jesus, it's, it's not a gospel of what happens to you when you die, but it's how are you going to live today? What are you going to experience? How are you going to go through this life? See, the gospel is a message of hope, but not a hope that begins when you die. It's a hope that allows you to truly live in the here and now, in your marriage life, in your friend life, in your family life, as you're at work, as you're going to school, in everything that you do, that's what the kingdom is. And if we miss the message, we miss the mark. We begin spreading a good news that may be kind of good, but it's not the entire package. And the danger, if we don't know what we're sharing as Christians, it's not that we don't inform people, but it's we misinform people as we begin to proclaim what Jesus said it was. The danger is that we miss the gospel. And when you do that, it impacts how you deal with Jesus. It impacts how you deal with other people and how you look at God. Far too many believers look at their relationship with God like Captain Kirk and Spock looked at Scotty in Star Trek. Y'all remember those? They go through their life and they do their adventures and what they want. And when they get into trouble, they pray to Scotty and they hit the communicator and they say, beam me up, Scotty. How many of us look at God that way? If I'm going to live my life and I'm going to do what I'm called to do, when it, gets, when it gets heated, when my back is put up against the wall, I begin praying, God, get me out of here. Save me. Rescue me. It's not the gospel. We view it wrongly. And when we do that, not only does it impact how we live, ultimately it impacts how we see heaven, how we see our eternal resting place. Let me ask you a question. What does the kingdom of heaven look like to you? As you envision, what, as a Christ follower, let's say you get the question right and you get to make it in. What does it look like for you forever, for the rest of eternity? I think a lot of us have bought into this idea of the gospel of Looney Tunes where you see this guy sitting on a cloud. He's playing a harp. He's wearing a halo. He's got these little bitty wings on his back and he's wearing a diaper, right? That's the picture of heaven that has been sold for far too long. And I have so many problems with so many aspects of that picture. I'm good with the halo. That's kind of cool. I have a big problem with the harp. Because if I'm choosing an instrument, I'm not choosing the harp. It can be cool for you. It's not cool for me, right? I don't want to play the harp. I want to play something cool. If I'm going to get wings, I don't need the little ones that can't take my big self anywhere. I need some big wings. If I got to have wings, I want to be able to fly. It'd be embarrassing to have those little wings. And I don't even want to get started on the diaper deal, right? Like one of my crowning achievements in life was getting out of diapers and one of my goals in life is to never go back into diapers. Why would we proclaim a message of the kingdom of heaven that's this watered-down, sissified gospel? That's not the good news. That's not where you want to go. And I think if that's what we proclaim as followers of Jesus, ultimately nobody wants to go there. Heaven's not this boring church service that I get to sit in for eternity. We're telling a wrong message. That's the purpose of this series is that if we're here to proclaim the message of Jesus, which was the kingdom of heaven, we got to make sure we get the message right. we got to make sure we're proclaiming the right good news. And so it's all about the kingdom. Pastor Steve talked a little bit about it last week. 
that everyone has a kingdom. We all understand kingdom to a certain degree because it's hardwired into our DNA by God the Father. Like we're created with like a default leniency towards kingdom. That's why we don't like being told what to do. That's why you want to do what you want to do. How many of you have ever had a two-year-old or ever been around a two-year-old? Do you know what their favorite word is? No. No. It's their favorite word. You know what the second favorite word is? Mine. No and mine. Do you know why those are their favorite words? Do you know why that's the first thing that comes out of them when they haven't been tainted by the world around them? Because that's kingdom words. That's dominion. That's authority. That's what God puts on the inside of us. We're built for kingdom. The problem is if we get the kingdom wrong, and that's why Jesus over and over again laid out what his kingdom looks like, what his kingdom should look like. What is our kingdom? Last week, Pastor Steve talked about house rules, right? It's your kingdom, it's your house, you get to make the rules. This week, I'm going to say it this way. Your kingdom is ultimately where what you say goes. It's where what you want to have happen happens. You're in charge. We all have a kingdom to a certain degree. The two-year-old, the 50-year-old, you have a kingdom. They all vary in size and shape. How do you deal with your kingdom? My wife and I got to deal with kingdom a little bit yesterday. I have uh, three boys, all awesome. I've got two nine-year-olds, and then I have a four-year-old. The four-year-old, I call him homie because he's a gangster, and he understands kingdom in a different way than I understand kingdom, and we're working on that. Because yesterday morning, my wife and I are laying in bed. We've woken up, but we haven't gotten out of bed yet. The house is still dark, really still quiet. So we're like, okay, let's just slowly get up. We'll go make the coffee. Out of the blue, my wife gets a text message from our neighbor across the road and says, hey, it's not a big deal, but I just wanted to make sure you knew that Liam was at my house. <laughs> what? No, didn't know that. He's fine. I just wanted to make sure you knew where he was. I was like, no, he ain't fine either. So I get up out of bed, get my clothes on, walk across the street. I walk into my neighbor's house, y'all. Liam is sitting in their recliner. He has a plate of Totino's pizza rolls and a large chocolate milk. And he's just chilling. And I walk in and he's like, what's up? I'm like, what is happening right now? Come to find out. Liam, my four-year-old, had decided to let my dogs out. He saw my neighbor across the road. The next thing my neighbor knows, he turns around and Liam is ringing his doorbell. His wife lets Liam in, and the first question he asks her is, hey, can we watch TV? She says, well, sure, Liam, come on in. So Chad, my neighbor, makes his way in, and he goes up to Liam. He's like, hey, you hungry? And he's like, sure. He's like, okay, so do you like chocolate milk? He said, you got a straw? Yeah, I do. He made himself at home. Why would he do that? I'm still trying to answer that question, but I think a part of it is that he has this kingdom mentality where it's his kingdom. He calls himself baby boss. That's what he calls himself. I'm baby boss. You daddy boss. I said, well, you just need to know that daddy boss is in charge of baby boss. Nope. Listen. All right, we're going to get there. He's the strong-willed child. Y'all pray for him and for me. But that's kingdom. Listen, this is what I want to happen, so I, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. It's hardwired into us. So the thing that Jesus wants to make sure as he begins teaching all these disciples who acted a whole lot like my four-year-old, 
is that, listen, this is what your kingdom, the kingdom of the earth looks like, and this is how it operates. But let me tell you the good news of my kingdom, because this is how my kingdom works. And he did so all through the gospels in these things called parables. Parables are very, very simple stories that teach very, very powerful truths. Last week, we looked at this parable of Jesus teaching that his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is like a mustard seed. It's like yeast in bread, that it's invasive. Even just a little bit, once it's inserted into something, it takes over everything in its wake. This week, we're going to be looking at a different parable that Jesus preached. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 14. That's where we're going to hang out today. As we look at this parable of the great feast, now before I dive into it, I want to help with a little bit of setup because you can kind of have an idea of where we've been so that you'll know where we're going. In this story at the beginning of Luke chapter 14, Jesus himself has been invited by what the Bible tells us is the ruler of the Pharisees. So this is the most influential of all the religious people of Jesus' day. He's been invited to a feast at the Pharisees' house. Now, anytime you see Jesus and the Pharisees in the same time and space in the gospel, you need to know that there are ulterior motives at work. The Pharisees made it their life goal to put Jesus into a trap so that they could get him to say something that he knew he didn't need to say or they could get him to do something that he really didn't need to do so that they could somehow one-up him and discredit his ministry because they did not like the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was proclaiming. Because they, as the religious people, were all about the kingdom of earth and their set of rules and their set of systems that elevated them and their importance. So Jesus goes to this guy's house and he's prepared this great feast. And Jesus goes and sits down and begins talking to these Pharisees. And right out the gate, Jesus picks up on a problem among the Pharisees. He he notices something's off as he's looking around at this kingdom that they've set up in comparison to the kingdom that he remembers of heaven, and Jesus, in epic fashion, calls them out to their face in their house. I love it. Jesus says this, Luke chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus turned to his host, who is the ruler of all the Pharisees, and he says, listen, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your reward. He says, instead, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then when you do that at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Jesus lays out this truth. But there's this one religious guy. There's always at least one. One dude pops up and he says, hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed. And like, I can just hear this arrogant, pompous, religious spirit kind of speaking up. He says, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. And this gets all over Jesus because Jesus is like, you didn't pick up anything I just put down. You're not understanding what I'm telling you. And so in response to that, the Bible tells us that Jesus replies with a story, this parable that we're going to look at. Out the gate, he says, a man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations Now, this same story is is echoed in the book of Matthew, where Matthew tells us that this man preparing a feast is actually a king preparing a feast for his son. And they begin to make this most epic of celebration. They're planning it out, and they send out invitations. Now, in this day and age, their method of bringing people together was sort of similar to ours today. There were actually two separate invitations that would have went out, just like you would have done today. The first round of invitations would have been like an RSVP. 
Now, they didn't have the postal service. They didn't have mail courier or email. So this king literally would have taken one of his servants, put a scroll, an invitation to this great feast, and he would have sent his servant all around all the different farms and all the different towns and communities, inviting these people to the feast that the king was going to be throwing. And then at that point, they would have the opportunity to RSVP to the party. Man, I can't wait. I'll be there. The servant makes his round, goes around, and lets everybody know so that once the RSVP comes back, just like we do today, the king then knows how many people he needs to prepare the feast for. And once he does that, that begins this long, drawn-out process where they begin preparing the feast. Again, they didn't have, you know, convection ovens and microwaves, and they didn't have Publix and the market that they could go to, no Whole Foods, none of that. They would have to go out into the vineyards and pick the grapes so that they could begin making the wines. They would have to go find the prized beef. They would have to go take it to slaughter. They would have to do all this work, all this time, all this effort, and all this expense to prepare this feast based on the number of RSVPs that had come in on the front end, just like you would do today. Then there's a problem. The Bible tells us in verse 17, Then when the banquet was ready, he sent his servant again to tell the guest. So this is the second invitation. RSVPs have already come back. The feast has been prepared. It's ready. And now they're going back to say, listen, that RSVP, it's time. Come, the banquet, the feast is waiting on you. But there's a problem that we see as the servant begins making his rounds. We see in verse 18, but they all began making excuses. All these people who said they wanted in. They wanted to come to the feast. They all began making excuses. One said, oh, man, I've just bought a field, and I must inspect it, so please excuse me from the feast. The next one said, I've just just bought five pairs of oxen, and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Verse 20, another excuse pops in. He says, I now have a wife, so I can't come. Please excuse me. So as the servant begins making his way around the cities and around the towns, All these people that said they wanted in start giving excuses of why they can't come to the feast. Verse 21, the servant returned and told his master what all the people had said, and his master was furious and said, now go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done that, he reported back to the master and he said, hey, there's there's still room for more. So his master told him, I want you to go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. And then he gives this statement on the end that's amazing. He says, for none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. Jesus' story ends amongst the Pharisees, the most elite. What did he mean? What is the purpose of this story as Jesus is using this great feast to illustrate his kingdom? I think there's three things that we're going to pick up on this story. Three things that we're going to see that Jesus wants us to learn about the kingdom of heaven, what it looks like. The first thing is this. The gates of the kingdom are wide open. You see very early on, the master is inviting everyone to come to the feast. There's place for everyone. There is room and more room for anyone and everyone who wants to come. 
This was revolutionary to the Pharisees who believed that you had to look like them and dress like them and walk like them and talk like them. You had to be educated like them in order to be able to attend the feast with the master. And Jesus puts it right in their face. As he's sitting in their house, he looks around and he notices something. Listen, all that's at this party is a bunch of rich, influential white guys. Jesus calls them out on it. And I think if we took that and we put it in our context today, it would be like Jesus looking around going, hey, where's the, where's the black guys? Where's the Hispanic people? Where's the, where's the women? Why, why do you think this has to be the party? That would have gotten all over these Pharisees because in their time and day, like the women were property. That, they weren't welcome to the party, but over and over again, what do you see in Jesus' life? The women are right there. He said, bring the children. That would have flown in the face of everything these Pharisees believed about the kingdom. Jesus is telling them it has nothing to do with how much money you make, nothing to do with your social status, your integrity, your education. It doesn't matter anything. I want all the sinners. I want all the broke, busted, messed up people. I want you to bring the crippled, the blind, the lame. I want everybody in my kingdom. I don't care what the white nationalists say. I don't care whatever label you want to put on them. If there is some way by God's grace that they make it into the kingdom, they are going to be blown away at who is represented in the kingdom of heaven because the gates are wide open. I don't know what denomination you come from, but I'm here to tell you, everybody is welcome at Jesus' table. That's what he wanted us to pick up. The gates to my kingdom are wide open. The second thing is this, the kingdom of heaven, it's a party. He uses this illustration of a feast over and over again, all throughout scripture. That listen, coming to me is not boring. It's not that you sit in an eternal church service where you have to sit there in your seats with your legs crossed, making sure that you abide by all the social standards. No, he said, listen, I'm throwing a feast I want you to think of the greatest party you have ever been to in your entire life. And I'm not talking about keg party. I'm talking like the biggest marriage ceremony, the biggest after party, whatever banquet, whether it's a sports banquet or a, you name it. Y'all remember a couple years ago, all the hoopla over the royal wedding that took place in England and like the world is watching and all these crazy things and these parades and an abundance of expenses put out. You know what? That was for a king. That was a feast for a king. Jesus is telling us, listen, this is the feast, but it's not just for a king. This is a feast. This is a party for the king of kings. And it's going to be bigger and better than you can ever imagine. This will be the biggest celebration in history. And you're invited. You get to be there. But there's a third thing I think we have to pay attention to. And it's that while, yes, the kingdom of heaven, its gates are wide open, you still have to make the choice to enter the gates. You see, as Jesus goes through this story, he tells us that there were a whole lot of people that RSVP'd to the party. Churches everywhere, pastors like to get up and they proclaim this good news, this gospel that if you want to experience life in Christ, all you have to do is pray a prayer. Say the magic words. Then you're good. Go back to your life. 
and there are a whole lot of people that want to get in on that Savior part. Well, I don't want to go to hell. Whatever I got to do, what do I got to say? What RSVP do I have to send? Do I want to go to hell? No. Do I want to go to the party? Yes. And they pray a prayer. Maybe they walk an aisle and they come to an altar and they RSVP'd. But Jesus says, listen, just saying you want to come to the party isn't enough. In this day and age, those people that RSVP'd, when the servant came back around and said, now it's time, come to the party, they would have had to begin making arrangements in their life. They would have had to have made arrangements for someone to take care of their herds and their flocks. They would have had to get their finest outfits on, and they didn't have horses and chariots and all these things, so they would have had to begin the process of walking towards the master's house, towards the king. Could take them days, could take them weeks. They had to come. But Jesus tells us that when the time came to put action behind the words that they said, they were full of excuses. So I just bought this land. In our world today, that would be like, listen, God, I know you've called me as a Christ follower to be generous, that I'm supposed to give and I'm supposed to involve, but you know, I just, I just bought this house and all this land and I gotta take care of this. Ultimately saying, my kingdom is taking priority over your kingdom. The next guy they get to says, yeah, man, I really wanted in. Like I wanted to come, but I, I just bought these oxen. I've got I've to put them to work. Be like us saying, you know, I really wanted to be involved. I wanted to, to do all these things. I want to experience the kingdom, but this job, I just, I can't get out of that. Like that's what's taking me over. And ultimately, you know what? I, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I can't. I can't be involved in your kingdom. I have to focus on my kingdom. The third guy is the most ridiculous excuse of all. He said, I'm sorry, I just got married, and apparently my wife doesn't like parties. Ultimately, what that guy's saying is there's this, this new relationship in my life that is now taking priority over my relationship with the master. So I'm sorry, I can't come to the party because this person now has all my attention, all my time, all my energy. And the master at the end says, none of them will experience even the slightest taste of my party because they said something with their mouths, but their lives didn't show that they wanted to engage in that kingdom. And that's the challenge. That's the gospel. See, it doesn't have anything to do with the ultimate destination. That's all just part of it. Life in Christ doesn't begin when you die. It begins now. It's in every decision you make, every conversation you have. Yes, it's in how you spend your money. It's how you give your time. Because when you begin to see the kingdom of heaven the way Jesus saw it, the way Jesus taught it, Like we said last week with the mustard seed, it takes over every aspect of your being. It changes the way you love your neighbor. No, you can't hate anybody and love Jesus. That is impossible. So don't tell me you love Jesus. Don't tell me you're proclaiming the good news and while out of the other side of your mouth, you're speaking against entire people groups thinking you're somehow better than they are. It's not the gospel. That's not Jesus. He's nowhere to be found in that message. 
Don't say something. You got to show it. it. Changes the way you love your neighbor. It changes the way you serve people. It changes the way you give of your time. Yes, God, I know I've got these abilities and these talents that you've given me that I could use for all these things to build my kingdom. But you know what? It ain't about my kingdom anymore. I'm going to use all the things that you've given me, God, for your kingdom because you are the Lord, not just my Savior. It changes everything. And Jesus is telling these guys, listen, the gates are wide open. Anybody can come, and it is going to be amazing, but you have to make the sacrifice to push your kingdom aside and say, Jesus, I'm all about you. That's why Jesus' prayer was not my will, not my kingdom, but thine. Bringing heaven to earth. That's the message of Jesus. And so coming out of this story, we all have a choice. Every single person in here, you have a choice every single day. What do you do with the message of the kingdom? It's not the secret question. How do you live your life? If you want Jesus to be your savior, he first has to be your Lord. And that means he calls the shots. It's not your kingdom anymore, it's his. It changes you. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I think there are a couple people in here. Maybe some of you here, you prayed a prayer one time. You RSVP'd to the party, but you know that your life has never begun moving in his direction. You know it's still all about your kingdom and how much wealth you can accumulate and how much social status you can bring in. That was the Pharisees. It's all about their kingdom, how people viewed them. Some of you in here, maybe you've never RSVP'd. Maybe you never knew that the gates of heaven were wide open to you because of where you grew up or some of the things you've done in your past. If you're here, if you can hear my voice, whether you're here in person or you're here online, Jesus is here to tell you that you have a seat at his table and it already has your name on it. But it's not just enough to say you want to go to the party. You have to come. You have to begin orienting your life and moving towards the master. See, my wife and I got married in an instant. And we said some vows and we sealed it with a kiss and a ring, but that wasn't the end. That just began a progression, a lifestyle of learning each other and falling more and more in love with each other, sacrificing what I want for what she wants, giving myself over to her. That's why over and over again, all through the Gospels, we see that, that Jesus uses the picture of a marriage to illustrate his relationship with us. It's a feast. It's a party. But you can't just give him lip service. The kingdom of heaven has to take over everything in your life. It changes you from the inside out. You don't represent you anymore. It's all about Jesus. And so your question is, are you just going to give him lip service? Are you just going to RSVP and then begin making excuses of why you can't live the kingdom life? Why you can't be all that God created you to be? Or are you going to say, you know what? I'm going to begin moving my life in your direction because that's the only time life really begins. 
Father, I pray for every single person in this room, God. I pray that you would begin to open our eyes to the opportunities that are in front of us, God, that it's not just about our kingdom and what we can build and all the wealth that we can accrue and the social status and the influence. God, that everything that we have is not about us, it's not for us, that ultimately, Father, it's all about you. How can I use my gifts to serve you? How can I use the resources that you've given me to serve you? How can I reach more people for you with the message of your kingdom, not mine? God, give us the power. Give us the strength and the faith to make those decisions day in and day out, God. And that Faith Church wouldn't be a church of excuses, but that we would be a church that passionately pursues the heart of the Father and that we would bring as many people as we can to the table. We love you, God. We bless you. Jesus, you have your way in this place because it's not our church, it's your church. It's not our will, but it's your will be done. And when we do that, life begins in Jesus' name. Amen.